Uh, Mr. Cecil Harris. Thank Sports writer extraordinaire. Well, thank you. And authored. Uh, you've authored a couple of books at least, right? Well, I've, I've authored four. Um, the last two on tennis. That's, that's the thing. Um, mm-hmm. My first book was on hockey. Second was on baseball. Uh, third, tennis. And this most recent book, Different Strokes, Serena, Venus, and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution, basically updates the first book, which came out in 2007. And at that time, for example, Serena Williams was a very talented player who had not yet reached her potential. But in the past 15 years, really, she's become an icon. She has become the greatest female tennis player ever. And I wanted to basically put the Williams sisters' careers, Serena and her older sister Venus, in some historical perspective and give readers some information on the history of blacks in tennis because it's a predominantly white sport but Mm -hmm. blacks have been playing tennis since the early 1900s there was the american tennis association which began in 1916 in baltimore founded by black um, business leaders because of the segregation of the times they wanted to have a way to bring black people together every year to play tennis so they started the ATA, which still exists to this day. Mm. Can I, can I, or can we actually step back? And I want to know a little bit about yourself, how you got into being a sports writer, and then, you know, quickly bring it up to you being an author, and, and why you chose, uh, like, the baseball, the hockey, and the tennis to really write about Okay, I grew up in um, Brooklyn, New York, first-generation American. My parents came to America from Barbados. A similar story, wanting to provide a better life for their their children. So I grew up playing sports with my friends in Brooklyn, New York, and it turned out to be a blessing in disguise that I was not tall enough to ever have realistic dreams of becoming an NBA player or an NFL player or boxer or a track and field star. So I started to concentrate on what else I could do to keep myself in sports. And I wanted to basically marry writing and sports. And that became a a passion of mine. And when it was time for me to pick a college, I did my homework and found out that Fordham University turned out a high number of sports journalists, both broadcasters and writers. Um, Your audience, I'm sure, has heard of Vin Scully, legendary Broadcaster for the Los Angeles Dodgers, retired a few years ago, Fordham graduate, Charles Osgood, who hosted Sunday morning on CBS for decades, a Fordham graduate. And they turn out many sports journalists as well, including Mike Breen, who does the play-by-play of the NBA games on ABC and ESPN. So I went to Fordham, and when I graduated from there, became a sports writer And I covered the New York Yankees for the first time in the mid-1990s, and four of the eight beat writers who covered the Yankees for newspapers were Fordham graduates. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So were your parents, either one of them, uh, sports fanatics, or is it just something you uh, were attracted to as as a child? It's something that I was attracted to as a boy. My my father is a fan of baseball. It reminded him of cricket, the sport he played often in Barbados. And he would also watch soccer. He wasn't much for American football or basketball, but he loved baseball. 
My mother was not a sports fan at all, but she was an important person in my development because I wanted to be able to write articles that she would understand. Mm -hmm. So I often would have her in mind while I was writing a sports story so I could strike that balance between people who really know this subject, let's say it's baseball, and someone like my mother who is reading it because her son wrote it. And if she likes it, she'll take it to church with her on Sunday and show it to the other women that that's what she used to do <laughs> with many of my articles. So I was attracted to sports, just playing it in the neighborhood and watching it on TV. And it's ironic that tennis was not one of the sports I was attracted to at first. That didn't happen until 1994 when I saw the 14 year old Venus Williams for the first time. It was intrigued by this black girl in a predominantly white sport whose father is telling the world my daughter Venus is going to be the best player in the world. <laughs> so I wanted to see if she could live up to the hype that her father was putting out. And she did. And then her younger sister, Serena, 15 months younger, comes along a year later. They both turn pro at 14. And Serena turns out to be even better than Venus. So I'm, I basically grew up watching sports. And when I realized I would never become a pro athlete, the next best thing is to become a sports journalist so you can stay in sports. Mm-hmm. Wow. And you certainly have done that. I mean, the sports coverage that you've done. Uh, and then, like you said, you want to marry the two of writing and yes. being surrounded still by sports. And then you now you're an author of four books. So, yeah, I've had great experiences covering sports. Um all over North America, mainly. I mean, I covered the Olympics, but they were in Atlanta, so I didn't get to go to some, let's say, exotic place. It was <laughs> right here in the U.S., but I had a good time covering boxing that year, and I got to ask Muhammad Ali a question. That was fun. <laughs> that would, that's like a, to me, I would think it would be a, a bucket list or a dream for many uh, writers. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, I basically have living out my dream covering major events, uh, the World Series, uh, the NBA Finals, the Stanley Cup Finals in hockey, major tennis, major boxing, uh, the Olympics. That was in 1996 in Atlanta. And I mean, legendary boxers were there every day, like um, George Foreman, Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, uh, Evander Holyfield, watching the matches. And... It was, it was just a, a, a real thrill. And on the final day of Olympic boxing, the United States did not have a gold medal yet. And a, a middleweight from Philadelphia named David Reed was fighting against a Cuban. The Cuban was heavily favored. And the Cuban basically was outboxing Reed for the first two rounds. It was a three-round bout. And Reed needed a knockout to win, basically a Hollywood scenario. The only way the American can win a gold medal for his country is to knock out the Cuban in the final round. And that's what David Reed did. And (laughs) the boxing matches were at Georgia Tech, and the place went crazy. I ran down from my location with the press level to Muhammad Ali at ringside, and I said, Mr. Ali, what do you think of David Reed? And Ali said, he's a bad boy. (laughs) That was in my lead. Since since we're talking real quick about the boxing, I got to throw in two of my favorite boxers back in the day were Thomas the Hitman Hearns, and do you remember a fighter named Livingston Bramble? I 
No, I don't remember. I remember the name. But I don't remember him very well. He was the guy that came in a few times with like a boa, a live boa constrictor around his okay. neck. <laughs> yeah, and he was a, a a contender. He was ranked up there, you know, probably within the top five. So, but I, yeah, I remember the name. <laughs> so, I guess yeah, enough of that because we want to talk about your your book, your latest okay. book again. Do you happen to have your book handy right there? I do. I have a copy of it here. There it I'll is. Turn it this way so there's no glare, hopefully. Right. Yeah, you're perfect right there. Right. Different Strokes, Serena, Venus, and the Unfinished Black Tennis Revolution. So let's start back a little bit. Why is it that you think that there are not very many black tennis players? I think it well, almost sounds like you're alluding to that. Very expensive sport. Very expensive yeah, very expensive. I grew up in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn where I didn't see any tennis courts. Plenty of basketball courts, plenty of places to play handball or softball, but very few tennis courts. And many predominantly black neighborhoods are like that. There just aren't enough places to play. And it's also a very expensive sport. The, the lessons are expensive. There are high-end tennis courts academies in the United States, Florida, California, Arizona, where people can play year round. And some of them charge up to $80,000 per child just for tennis instruction. And that's way beyond the means of most American families. Mm -hmm. So it's economic, it's geographical, it's also cultural because in many instances, young people don't want to do something that their friends are not doing. Mm, if right. their friends are playing basketball, they want to play. I was pretty much like that. But no one's playing tennis, so it's hard to get... your. If your friends aren't playing, it's hard to convince you that you should play tennis. And I interview one uh, former tennis pro, Scoville Jenkins, in the book. He grew up in the Atlanta area, and he was quite candid with me, telling me how his friends would tease him because he would go off on Friday nights to practice with his coach, from 7 p.m. to midnight. So he was missing the Friday night football games, the Friday night parties, the other socializing that his high school friends were doing. But he was so dedicated to becoming a professional tennis player, which he did for seven years, and he's now a tennis coach at Oklahoma State University. So in the end, it all paid off for him. But that's an example of a, a young black male who was so determined to make it in tennis that he put his social life on hold. And a lot of young boys and girls are not willing to do that. They want to fit in. They want to do what their friends are doing. And tennis is usually not what their friends are doing if they grow up in a predominantly black neighborhood. You know, I jotted down a couple of things that I looked up. And what I found interesting, too, is as far as um, black or colored athletes, it's almost stereotypical going with the swimming type of situation you know uh, it, it's it's here's what i found amazing it said in tennis and these are uh stats that i just found and there's most recent as i could find it says that 78 percent of the tennis players are uh, professional tennis players are white and 6.8 percent were black and then in volleyball same percentage 78 white 6.8 black baseball um it 7.2% were black, which really surprised me. I thought there would be far more. But then we go to football. You're at 57.5% black, 24.9% on white. 
NHL. Uh, they, they said 43 players are black, and there are over 1,700 NHL players. Uh, NASCAR, I think there's only three. And NBA, you're back up. 74.2% black, 16.9% white. WNBA, you're at 83% who are colored, or 67% who are uh, of black descent. Um, swimming, really a crazy thing. So uh, this is back in 2019. The BBC said that there were over 73,000 registered professional swimmers, and there are only 668 or 665 registered who are black. And in the U.S., there's about 1% of the registered professional swimmers out of 400,000 that are black athletes. And then here we are with tennis. Um, It's all about getting the opportunity or not getting the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I devote a section in my book to um, a place called Excess Tennis Village in Chicago. A black tennis coach named Kamal Murray basically bid for the land after... A notorious housing project was knocked down. Um, He bid for the land and built a tennis uh, court on that facility. Excuse me. And he turned it into a 28-court tennis facility on the south side of Chicago, a predominantly black area. And that's introducing many people to tennis, and they don't have to leave their neighborhoods. Mm. And I think that's the model for what can lead to more black participation in tennis if more tennis facilities like excess are built in predominantly black areas or areas that are easily accessible to black children and their parents that will lead to more people wanting to play the sport because i find that enough young black people like tennis because they see venus and serena for example but if there's nowhere for you to play in your neighborhood you'll just root for the williams sisters but you won't think in terms of becoming a tennis player because you don't have the access and um, that is a problem Um, so excess tennis village in Chicago is a great facility that that we need to have more like that so more people can play the sport okay Um, that it's all making sense what you're saying now Uh, as far as the opportunities just aren't there uh, mm-hmm. Black, white, whatever color you are, you watch and you see Serena, Serena and Venus. Uh, Tomoko is that uh, one of the other? Oh, uh, Naomi Osaka. Osaka, yes, yes, yes. Who is Haitian and, and Japanese? Yes. Uh, yes. Where you see people of folks of color who are playing, and then I'm wondering about Arthur Ashe uh, mm-hmm. if. Because he was widely known, I think, whether you're, again, it doesn't matter what your race was, you knew Arthur Ashe. And it seems like at that point in time, that would have catapulted what you're saying as far as making things more accessible uh, for uh, the black neighborhoods. But it it really didn't happen then. It's interesting. When Arthur Ashe won the first U.S. Open in 1968, I mean, I was alive, but I wasn't watching tennis. When he won Wimbledon, the most famous tournament in the world in 1975, I was alive, but I wasn't watching tennis. I mean, his impact has been great on the sport, and he's the the second black major tennis champion, but by far the best known uh, before the Williams sisters came along, that is. 
So he had a great impact on the sport. He was a, a humanitarian as well as a major tennis champion. But it didn't really resonate in the Brooklyn, New York neighborhood where I grew up because no one was talking about tennis. I wasn't watching the sport then myself. It was only when I started working on my first tennis book that came out in 2007 that I researched Arthur Ashe extensively and regretted missing a lot of the highlights of his career. Mm. For example, when he won Wimbledon in the final in 1975, I contacted NBC to see if I could get a tape of the match. They didn't have it. I had to write to the BBC in England, and they sent me a DVD of the match. And that was the first time I got to watch that final in its entirety. And Arthur Ashe was a brilliant player, but, again, not too many people in predominantly black neighborhoods were following tennis. The Williams sisters have done a lot to change that because they were very young when they started. They both turned pro at 14. They had the braided hair and the beads, a very Afrocentric look about them. They had a father who was promoting them heavily, and it got a lot of people interested in them. That really didn't happen before the mid-90s. Mm. Um, so I'm going to apologize if I'm jumping all over the place. Okay. But since we're – in a bit, I want to find out about your first book. But right now, your second book, Different Strokes, and we're really talking about Venus and Serena – uh, yes. The movie that recently came out with Will Smith. Do yes. you think, if you could comment on it, did it portray uh, the family dynamics uh, correctly? Yes, that's the best thing they did. Basically, okay. Will Smith as Richard Williams and Ingenue Ellis as Oracine Price, Richard's wife at the time, they have since divorced. They got that right. And the young Venus and Serena, the movie basically ends in 1994 when Venus is 14 years old and has played her first professional tournament. Serena's not even a pro yet. We don't even see the legendary Serena Williams yet. We see glimpses of it in junior tennis. But the movie King Richard did a great job of depicting the family dynamic. Uh, everything I know in my research about the Williams family uh, taught me that Venus and Serena really did not have a sibling rivalry. They loved each other so much that they wanted to make sure the script did not invent conflict between the girls because there really wasn't any. And basically, Richard and Orsine taught themselves the sport. It was Richard's dream to produce two tennis champions out of his for two youngest children, and Orsine had to buy in. So Richard bought tennis books and VHS tapes and took lessons from a local tennis pro, a Mr. Oliver, he said, who is no longer with us. And Richard learned enough to impart it to his wife, Oracine, who, who would then impart it to their daughters. And there was so much love and encouragement in that household that the girls grew up believing they could be the best in the world. It was not a pipe dream to them. And it just shows the importance of familial support and, and parental love. Telling them over and over again, you're great, you're going to be great, and just keep working hard at it, and they did. The movie really depicts that, and it also shows very well why Richard Williams decided to take Venus and Serena out of junior tennis because there's a lot of cronyism and nepotism, 
a lot of spoiled kids and overbearing parents. And Richard and Orsine did not want their daughters to grow up that way. They wanted them to stay humble and focused and hardworking. And they just didn't like the way the other kids acted or the way the other parents acted. So that was a gamble in itself, Chuck, taking them out of junior tennis because that's the conventional route to professional stardom. What Richard did is basically have Venus and Serena practice and play against each other while he reached out to the major um, tennis sportswear manufacturers like Reebok, Nike, Puma, to get them interested enough to see the girls. And that's how Venus was able to get her first endorsement contract from Reebok. And backing up just a bit, Richard reached out to a tennis coach in Florida named Rick Macy, who was also depicted in the movie King Richard. And Macy liked what he saw of Venus and Serena, who were basically 13 and 12 at the time. But he believed in them enough to help them move from Compton, California, very rough neighborhood, to Palm Beach, Florida, where they could play on manicured tennis courts every day. And that aided their development. So Richard had a plan. Orisine bought into the plan. They sold it to their daughters, but not in a way that made Venus and Serena sick of tennis. Instead, it made them really love tennis and want to please their parents by fulfilling Richard's prophecy that they would be the two best players in the world one day.